0: On today's episode, we have Dr. Kevin Van Lant joining us. Dr. Van Lant is a clinical counselor. He has worked at Talbot University over the head of the Pastoral Care and Counseling Program. He's also been a professor at Rosemead School of Psychology and taught on psychology and clinical counseling and marital counseling and so many other forms of counseling for a long time. So he's a lot to share with us today um, as we talk about mental illness and intimacy and relationships. And so I'm excited for you guys to hear from him. Let's dive on in. Hey guys, welcome to another episode. Uh, I'm sitting here with Dr. Kevin Van Lant. We're going to talk about mental health, um, intimacy, relationships, and how those all coincide and how they affect one another. So before we get into that, Dr. Van Lant, could you just kind of explain a little bit of your background? Where are you coming from? What have you done? Sure, sure. Well, I'm currently uh, an
1: associate professor at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University and uh, direct the pastoral care and counseling program. Uh, and that's a role I've been in for about the past five years or so. Prior to that, uh, I taught at Rosemead School of Psychology, and uh, I'm a clinical psychologist by training and have been working in the therapy world for about 25 years, 27 years. No. So I both teach and have a, a, a private practice, fairly limited private practice. Also work with an organization called SIFT, C-I-F-T Counseling. And it's a large Christian counseling group in Orange County, California.
0: And when you say Christian counseling, what do you mean by that? Because <laughs> I'm yeah. sure people have different understandings sure. of what Christian counseling means. Sure.
1: Yeah, well, that's a loaded that's a loaded question <laughs> in and of itself. So
0: we don't have to dive fully into it, but just maybe what's what's the distinction of where you're at in your field?
1: Sure. So uh, our group is made up of therapists who are all professing Christians. Uh, we have marriage and family therapists, we have psychologists, we have licensed clinical social workers, um, and they all espouse a Christian worldview and all attempt, on one level or another, uh, be, you know, somewhat depending on their training and their background, uh, to integrate that into their clinical work. Uh, of course, not everyone that we see there is a Christian, and so we're going to operate differently with somebody who's not a Christian, or if someone who comes in. And maybe it is nominally Christian and really doesn't want to talk about spiritual issues. We really have Mm -hmm. to respect that as clinicians. Um, uh, And so uh, I find that notion of integration is going to look different uh, just depending on the, the personality of the therapist and depending on what the person's really looking for.
0: Yeah. And the reason I asked for that clarification, because if someone heard Christian counselor, they might think you're just like prayed away, uh, <laughs> you know, no, uh, no. wanting to make sure they know that this guy's legit. Sure. Um, but yeah, so let's let's talk about mental illness and intimacy. This is a topic I think I've wanted to get around to um, just because we on the podcast, we talk a lot about intimacy, talk about relational dynamics, talk about a lot of almost behavioral present things. But we don't really get into the roots of why some of the problems arise um, or why some of the issues are coming. And I think mental illness can be a big, um, I mean, it can be a behavior, but also a thing that affects um, a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. So but maybe before we get into some of the effects and how they interact, um, could you maybe just kind of just define what mental illness is sure. and then maybe even define intimacy, which most people probably know mm-hmm. <laughs> what intimacy generally mm-hmm. is, but maybe what what is mental illness?
1: Yeah. Uh, so, Uh, part of my background uh, teaching undergraduate psychology courses is uh, I used to teach a class called abnormal psychology. So for psychology majors, they all take abnormal psychology and it's usually a class they really kind Mm -hmm. of enjoy because Mm -hmm. it's so interesting. But one of the things we delve into in that class is trying to understand uh, what, what mental illness actually is. How do you define it? And I really don't want to get Overly clinical in in our conversation, but the way we look at um, mental illness is uh, we talk about the four D's. Uh, in other words, how much does someone deviate from uh, sort of what we would think of as fairly normative within the culture? Uh, are they in distress? Are they experiencing some kind of personal distress? Is there a level of dysfunction in their life and their ability to maintain relationships, their ability to maintain a job, uh, their sometimes even their ability to just get out of bed in the morning? So. Uh, we're looking at that level of, of, of dysfunction and then the last one is the D is related to death do they uh, have some kind of suicidal ideation or homicidal ideations is there something kind of going on in that level uh, most of the time when someone's experiencing that it's almost always um, an intention to harm themselves they rarely want to harm other people uh, but we do need to differentiate those things and then uh, the the American Psychiatric Association uh, has a publication called uh, The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, right? <laughs> uh, which you might be familiar with, right? Uh, yeah, and, for one of
0: my classes with Dr. Mainland, he made us read pretty much half of it. <laughs> um, it wasn't half of it. It was yeah. just most mostly focusing on mental illness, yeah. but it was a lot. <laughs> yeah, but it was good. It's it was a good. big,
1: and it's not really a, a, a book to read. It's a reference manual, yeah. right? So what you're really looking at in that in that text is, uh, criteria that groups of specialists have said uh, when certain components of this are met, certain symptoms of this are met at a certain level, then they may be diagnosed as having a certain kind of mental illness. Yeah. Um, obviously, the common ones are things like depression and anxiety and mm-hmm. schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, these kinds of things. But it's it has, um, I think, what is it, 400 plus diagnoses yeah, that are part of this manual, right? Uh, some of them more obscure than others, but uh, that's kind of on a clinical level how we diagnose mental illness. Uh, the difficulty is the DSM is, you know, is written by people and it, mm-hmm. it has faults and it has mm-hmm. errors. Uh, and, and the reality is there are a lot of people that may not meet criteria for a specific mental illness. Uh, so we refer to them as sort of subclinical uh, however, they're really suffering. And so mm. these folks, again, don't meet criteria within a diagnostic kind of framework, but they're still suffering a great deal. Uh, and a lot of the interventions are going to look the same.
0: Yeah. And I think that's helpful because if a lot of people, it's, it's either you have depression or you don't. You have anxiety or you don't. But mm-hmm. there's such a spectrum. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think the four D's you mentioned are helpful, which is uh, deviance, <laughs> distress, dysfunction, and death, idealization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think having those kind of terms is helpful to find where do I fit on the spectrum? Just because I don't have full-fledged maybe clinical depression doesn't mean I'm not still suffering or struggling or hurting. Um, And so for those listening, it'll be helpful to know like just because you maybe haven't been given the clinical category doesn't mean this might not be affecting you um, Mm -hmm. to some capacity. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can dive in a little bit to some of the maybe more common mental illnesses, the buzzword mental illnesses, even if I could say with depression Mm -hmm. and anxiety, Um, especially I think- I mean, the what I've been seeing in the news um, is that it's rising amongst millennials and Gen Z, um, like populations. Which I don't know mm-hmm. if that's true because um, mm-hmm. the news nowadays, <laughs> I sure, can never tell. Sure. Um, but so let's let's talk about like what does maybe depression look like for someone? I mean, we all we know the term and we know mm-hmm. generally what we think they should look like. They should look like Eeyore, um, kind of sulking, you know, mopey. But what maybe does depression actually look like? Mm-hmm. Um, and how does maybe that affect Intimacy or relational dynamics with a partner, sure. or even with maybe with like a really close committed friend. Sure.
1: Well, I'll respond to the first part, even though it's not the question. But uh, when you were initially saying, you know, it seems like the rates of mental illness are increasing, yeah. know, especially among the millennials and Gen Zers. And uh, that really does seem to be true. So I, you know, I've, as part of my PhD program, we had to study a lot of statistics and uh, I used to teach statistics. So I know about the Uh, potential errors with using statistical Mm -hmm. data. Mm -hmm. And at first, I used to wonder if maybe the increased uh, rates of depression were uh, just connected to this reality that we're looking for it more, right? So we go Mm -hmm. to see our general practitioner, and there's usually an item on the intake questionnaire that asks about depression. That's kind of a new thing that wasn't there several years ago. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe we're just looking for it more, and so we're diagnosing it at a higher rate
0: well because i know that's with adhd that's what mm-hmm. a lot of people think it's it's maybe not necessarily say that kids have it more although they might mm-hmm. but there is also an added factor of we're just diagnosing it more readily mm-hmm. and that um, seems to be before
1: that seems to be true with autism as well yeah. so you know it's it's it, you know it's probably its own sort of tangent but <laughs> but i think with with things like autism uh what you have is You've had pediatricians who are better trained to assess for autism because early intervention matters. Yeah, and so uh, in the past they weren't necessarily looking for it, hmm. uh, and so maybe years down the road before they really start to get actual treatment. Yeah, and so some of this is really connected to the notion that the sooner you can diagnose it, the sooner you can treat it, the more uh, uh, positive the prognosis becomes, and that that tends to be true with most things. So, yeah. uh, so I think we are we are seeing it. Uh, maybe looking for it, we're seeing it more, we're diagnosing it more. Uh, but the thing that's really pushed me over the edge that it's actually a, a real phenomena is the increasing rates of suicide. Hmm. And the majority of people who commit suicide are clinically depressed. Yeah. And what you're seeing is a, a large increase in suicide rates. Uh, there's a big study that uh, went on from 1999 to 2014, and you saw a multi-digit uh, percentage increase in in suicide rates, especially mm-hmm. within younger folks, uh, and uh, middle-aged uh, females in particular, but also mm-hmm. males, and so we're seeing a massive increase in 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 uh, suicide, uh, which makes me think that depression data is real because suicide is a very objective fact, right? We yeah. we know when someone commits suicide, and and that doesn't even include people who are probably committing suicide but making it look like an accident we don't really know these are these are just folks that we know have committed suicide so i I think the data is real i think the increasing data uh is uh a a a reality that we're just having to confront as a culture we're having to confront it as a church Mm -hmm. and uh, we seem to be ill prepared
0: actually for this so um
1: That's another podcast, maybe.
0: (laughs) I'm sure there's plenty of them. So is depression, is that a hereditary kind of mental illness? Is it nature? Is it nurture? I'm sure there's a combination of both on everything. Mm -hmm. Um, But if someone is maybe unsure if they're struggling with depression or maybe they should even see someone, um, would it be helpful to look into their family line?
1: It it may be helpful, uh, only because... Uh, it may be helpful to know for instance if your mother uh, has been diagnosed with clinical depression or your your father or your sibling uh, and let's say medication has really helped them for instance I don't believe everybody who's depressed needs medication but maybe yeah. it, it's reached that level and uh, and that medication was really effective for them sometimes the biology is such that it may mm. be effective for you too so sometimes knowing uh, that can help um, but you know the the truth of it is uh, you are more predisposed towards depression if you have an immediate family member who struggles with depression, especially your parents. And uh, and, and it, it sort of doubles your chance of, of uh, developing depression at some point in your life, but it doesn't make it 100%. So maybe it it sort of increases it from 9% to 18% or something yeah. like that, but it doesn't yeah. mean you're going to develop yeah. depression, but it does mean you have some vulnerability to it. Um, But everything in, you know, in mental health by and large, other than certain disorders, but for the most part, it's some combination of both biological predisposition and environment. It's Mm -hmm. how do those two things meet? If I'm sort of biologically predisposed toward it and I have scenarios that take place in my life, um, you know, it might just be sort of this nexus of events that sort of brings Mm -hmm. about a depressive episode. Uh, for some folks, it may be less about biology and more about environment and yeah. and vice versa. Yeah. Um, so we're really looking at, you know, m- m- numerous factors
0: yeah. for sure. So say say a couple right now is listening to this podcast, and the, the man is 27, and he's been struggling with depression for six years, um, and the woman is 24. They've been married for two years. What do you think that's going to—I mean, obviously, you're not going to diagnose or dictate how it's going to look, but what generally does that look like in a relationship? How does it affect— Intimacy? How does it affect how they relate to one another? Um, Mm -hmm. Kind of what does depression look like in an intimate relationship?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is uh, that is a marriage that's at risk. Uh, Divorce rates where one spouse is clinically depressed are significantly higher than the general population. So what we do know is that uh, it takes a toll on a relationship. And I'll describe maybe even some of the symptoms, which makes it pretty obvious why it might take a toll. So somebody who's clinically depressed, uh, typically they have low energy. uh, They really are uh, not particularly sort of motivated to do the things of life. One of the things that we look for is, are they still enjoying the things that they used to enjoy? Hmm. And oftentimes when someone's depressed, the things that really were meaningful to them are no longer meaningful. So maybe they loved music or they loved working on cars or they, you know, love going to films or whatever it might be. They're, they're just not interested in those things anymore. It doesn't, they don't bring them pleasure anymore. And within a marital relationship, uh, a lot of those things might be the common uh, enjoyable experiences that they have. And now that person's not interested in doing them at all. And that can be kind of problematic. Uh, Another one is uh, oftentimes when someone's depressed, they lose interest in sex. And so, the sexual relationship is going to take a hit or it just feels like they're going through the motions because they're just not energized by sex. Mm-hmm. They're just doing it because they feel like they have to. So that obviously can create problems in the marriage. Uh, just the the sort of guilt uh, and despair that comes with depression can take a toll on a relationship as well. That this person that you're married to is constantly feeling just this weight of despair and, of, of, and feeling guilty about feeling depressed yeah. Feel like they know they're not engaging in the relationship the way they should. And so uh, they're kind of carrying this now in a really negative way. A- and over time, uh, this can take a real toll on the relationship because the yeah. person starts to feel unloved. They start to feel like they're losing connection with their spouse because the things that they used to love to do together are no longer enjoyed together. Uh, and they just don't feel kind of that sense of this person still loves me and cares for me i feel distant and attached and and kind of a coldness
0: yeah i've been in close relationships with like fellow guys who have struggled with depression and that aspect of the the shame and guilt i don't know if it's an added christian layer Mm -hmm. (laughs) of we're just naturally i think predisposed to guilt Mm -hmm. and shame because of some of how we were taught and raised um but that's a big part of it where they know they used to like doing that thing with us they know they should be going out to dinner with us, or going out to. We would go to trampoline parks, or you know something mm-hmm. silly, mm-hmm. but they just don't want to. Sure. And so then they pull back and just you know sit around, lay around, or whatever it is they use to distract themselves or to cope with it. And then they feel shame because it's like, mm-hmm. why can't I? Why can't I be what I once was? Why can't I be what I was a week ago? Mm-hmm. And that makes them more depressed um, and more pulling back. And it's this vicious. It feels like this vicious cycle Very much. of just through and through. Uh, and, and,
1: and I would add to that, too, the spouse, the, the non-depressed spouse, starts to get frustrated with yeah. the depressed spouse. They start yeah. to get kind of irritated and angry. And so next thing you know, the, now there's this vicious cycle of guilt and withdrawal and anger and frustration and, and conflict. And you can imagine this, this yeah. becomes a pretty ugly stew pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. Well, so I, I've never, I mean, I've had seasonal depression, but never clinical, never long term. And although I think it runs in my family, my family's a bunch of kind of deniers, and so <laughs> they just <laughs> act like they don't. Um, so they, I mean, in some ways, sometimes it's it helps. Yeah, it, it worked. Um, but that's been being a non-depressive friend in close relations with other friends who are clinically depressed. It does. It has. I know in my story has led to a ton of frustration with them. It's just because I don't understand. Mm-hmm. And I think for the the spouse, it's like you just don't understand why can't, it's almost like, why can't you just choose to be happy mm. when last week you were happy and this week you're not? Why are we having these swings in a sense? I mean, it's just because we don't understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that can, then that leads to them reacting in a way that increases the depression. Cause now I'm going to pull back cause I'm frustrated or I'm going to put shame on. Um, it's just adding, I think to the depressive yeah. cycle, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Why then that would lead to higher divorce rates and couples who have that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. maybe, maybe changing gears from depression, Um, Anxiety is another big buzzword um, Mm -hmm. in culture today, Um, and it also seems to be on the uprise. um, Social anxiety with, I mean, social media is a big marker, I think, in in increasing anxiety rates as well as depression rates and other things. Um, But maybe how does anxiety affect us um, specifically within a relationship? Um, And what does that look like in uh, maybe even a marital relationship? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it's a good question because depression and anxiety certainly tend to be the two most common forms Mm -hmm. of mental illness that people wrestle with and uh, and the most likely that we're going to experience at some point in time and 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 interestingly with anxiety uh anxiety and depression can be sort of flip sides of the same coin and and what i mean by that is somebody who's depressed oftentimes carries a fair amount of anxiety kind of just below the surface and even when you get the depression under control sometimes the anxiety will pop through Mm. And I find the same thing is true with anxiety, that people who are pretty anxious oftentimes have a bit of a depressive kind of uh, sort of experience underneath that. So they go hand in hand. Uh, Interestingly, the same medication that we typically use to treat depression uh, is this medication that's used to treat anxiety as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's something going on, both neurologically and experientially, that can sort of connect those two. Um, Anxiety, you know... it's, it's more common than depression. So, hmm. you know, lifetime prevalency of depression is, you know, it's probably roughly 10 to 15 percent of people are going to experience um, clinical depression at some point in time in their life. Uh, it's significantly higher than that for with anxiety. In fact, uh, with the younger, you know, kind of millennials and Gen Zers. Uh, it's up to about thirty two percent lifetime pregnancy. Wow. so it's it's high.
0: Well, we don't know lifetime yet, they're not dead so <laughs> no true true
1: but in their lifetime yeah. so far yeah. Uh, yeah so we're seeing the rates pr- uh, really kind of escalate uh, you know we've all been afraid we all we all know what fear is like. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a biological uh, capacity to experience fear because there are some things that should frighten us mm-hmm. a rattlesnake or you know some mm-hmm. kind of uh, snarling dog that's running after us. Mm-hmm. I mean, God built us with a physiological capacity to respond to that. So uh, we have this fight or flight mechanism that gets activated, and and so a lot of our uh, autonomic kind of nervous system gets activated. The sympathetic nervous system gets activated, and so pretty soon our heart rate goes up, and our blood pressure goes up, and we dump a bunch of uh, glucose and sugars, and all these things go on in the body to prepare us to sort of run away from the dog that's chasing us yeah. or escape the snake that's chasing whatever it might be, whatever the threat is. Um, but those are episodic, right? I mean, that kind of experience should be, I get activated in this way, uh, the threat uh, is no longer there, my body starts to calm down, yeah. and now I kind of return to a, a sort of homeostasis. Can I ask you a question about sure. that?
0: Why is it that we... Almost some of the population, not all of it, but like the adrenaline rushes. I can think of like my own story with either scary movies or like haunted houses. Or me and my friends used to do this thing where we would drive our car when we were teenagers. We'd drive our car into a neighborhood and park it about half a mile to a mile from a house. Then we would go and run to the house and ding dong, like Uh ring their doorbell a million times and then just sprint for half a mile because we loved the adrenaline rush, the anxiety of getting caught. Um, it's we used to TP people all the time. So there's an aspect of anxiety, I mm-hmm. think, in the nervous mm-hmm. system that like we like the rush. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also an aspect of it that it leave it's more long term and so what what is that yeah. interplay? Why is there seemingly fun <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> anxiety sure. and then this whole other arena that's not fun?
1: Yeah, so we like the adrenaline because the adrenaline yeah. energizes us. Got it's it. kind of exciting. Makes right? us feel alive, maybe Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there are adrenaline junkies, right? They just live for the rush of that. Uh, However, um, it's different than uh, panic, right? Because uh, that doesn't activate our entire sort of fight or flight mechanism. It sort of activates parts of it because we don't necessarily, you know, we kind of feel the threat of the scary movie or the running away from the you know, the teepee house or whatever the roller coaster. We used to,
0: we would teepee and then ring the doorbell to make sure they knew we were there. (laughs) It's no fun if they don't know, right? Yeah, we wanted to be chased. Exactly. So
1: that's sort of just excitement. That's that's the energy and we kind of like that. Uh, But it crosses a line into more of a panicky feeling, right? So when you're feeling anxious, that's a very aversive feeling. People, we don't like feeling anxious. We like excitement and energy. And mm-hmm. but there are some people that won't go near a roller coaster that would yeah. never go near a you know a TP experience, right? That <laughs> uh, that. So my friends didn't. <laughs> they yeah, wanted, they wouldn't come exactly. along. Exactly, <laughs> wouldn't go to a scary movie. Yeah, because for them it activates too much anxiety. They don't just get Got the it. adrenaline; they get the whole package. Hmm. That's not very pleasant. Yeah. Uh, and so we we're you know we have a capacity to feel scared and and usually that fear is about a specific thing right so i'm afraid that my student loans won't come in in time for the mm-hmm. semester or i'm afraid of my car breaking down because the lights come on the engine light with anxiety it tends to be much more pervasive so yeah. like a generalized anxiety disorder is I, i'm pretty anxious about almost everything and i may focus on one thing but if that thing disappears, I'm just going to move my anxiety to the next yeah. thing, And so I'm sort of constantly in this state of anxious arousal. So I'm mm-hmm. physiologically anxious. I'm psychologically anxious. And, and, I, and I don't know how to sort of turn it off. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and, and sometimes it's even rooted in, I feel like, irrational fears. I had a oh, buddy sure. recently who was really worried about that he was going to go to prison. For something that was very minuscule, mm-hmm. um, but he was in a season of a big season of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, it was it didn't it didn't help for me to just be like, well, you're not going to go to prison. That's sure. not going to calm the anxiety. But sure. I feel like a lot of times there's not maybe necessarily a thing they can point to. They just feel mm-hmm. anxious, and so maybe they'll attach it to something. Exactly. Um, but once that thing's resolved, it just moves yeah. to the next thing.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly what happens. And that's why, you know, telling somebody, well, you don't need, you don't worry about going to prison, <laughs> right? I mean, well, oh, yeah. it's not a bad thing to say, but it's not going to take away their fear exactly. of going to prison. So, because yeah. it's an irrational fear and mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, there are schools of thought about uh, therapy is even sort of an attentiveness to the irrational fears that make up anxiety. And so those irrational fears do have to be attended to, but they also have to be acknowledged that this feels real to them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to you and maybe even to them on some level, it's irrational to them. It feels as real as anything else.
0: And it's different from like, I think I have an irrational fear of sharks mm-hmm. <laughs> where I'm scared of the water, but mm-hmm. I'll still go in. Mm-hmm. And like, it's just, I won't go too far out by myself. Sure. But that's different than like, I'm scared of sharks sitting in the studio and I feel anxiety, mm-hmm. like burrowing up in me and now it's like i i can't move or there's different things there's a different people because i think a lot of people who don't suffer from anxiety have irrational fears and like well why can't they just get over it or choose not to think about it but that's not what we're talking about
1: no and those things tend to be more like phobias yeah so fear of heights fear of sharks and it's a very specific thing and Look, you can avoid a fear of sharks by just not going in the ocean. So, so right. I mean, (laughs) but I love boogie boarding. Exactly. (laughs) But what people do with phobias oftentimes is they do attempt to avoid the thing that they have the phobia towards. Right. So, I'm afraid of heights, so I don't like to fly, or I'm afraid Mm -hmm. I don't go up in tall buildings, or I have claustrophobia, so I don't like to get in small spaces. So, I'll avoid those anxiety. But with anxiety, more more generally, what most people feel. Are not phobias. They feel a more generalized mm-hmm. anxiety. They have mm-hmm. panic attacks, which are, which are extreme, and they're in their, in their the, they terrify people. They feel like they're going to die when they are have a panic attack. So, the phobias I find are much more manageable in many ways because you can more specifically kind of treat them. Uh, but the more generalized anxiety, that that's a tougher, mm-hmm. a tougher path. Yeah.
0: So maybe what are what are some symptoms, and specifically like a. A committed relationship. What does this look like um, with a partner or a spouse? Mm-hmm. Well, uh,
1: it it oftentimes looks like having to constantly deal with another person's irrational fears. Mm. That's what it really looks like. I'm afraid of new places. I don't really want to go to this party because I have a lot of social phobias. I'm I don't want to try new things. Um, I don't want to be around large groups of people. Uh, I really want to stay where it's safe Uh, and if and as a spouse that can be very limiting because next thing you know uh you can't travel to europe on a vacation because they're afraid of going to europe it's just Mm -hmm. too unpredictable it's too new it's too foreign Uh, they don't want to go uh you know to the beach because they're they're frightened of the waves they're frightened of the Mm -hmm. ocean they're frightened Mm -hmm. of everything that's making it up so what will happen when you're married to somebody who's, who's anxious quite broadly is that it starts to make your world smaller and smaller and smaller. And that can create a lot of conflict if you're not wired up the same way. If you don't want a small world mm-hmm. uh, and you have a spouse who, because of anxiety, does, again, it just becomes a source of conflict and becomes a source of tension. And it becomes frustrating because you're always trying to talk them out of it and they they're not necessarily open yeah. to being talked out of it
0: yeah that's helpful because I, again i think anxiety might be one of the most misunderstood i think struggles because i, mm-hmm. I think people get depression um, even though they they still want you to just choose to to not mm-hmm. be depressed mm-hmm. but anxiety i think everyone's just viewing it as this conglomerate of phobias mm-hmm. rather than this different kind of thing and so it's mm-hmm. like almost like well, the way I conquered my fears was I just got on the roller coaster and did it, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. which is was, I used to be scared of roller coasters, how I did it, but that's, sure. this is a different kind of anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's not just a, a fear or even a rational fear. It's it's yeah. a broader, broader thing, maybe even more unspecific. So maybe moving from the more common, everyone knows anxiety and depression, everyone probably knows someone close mm-hmm. in their lives that struggles from it. Maybe we can dive into a little bit more of the more unique uh, mental illnesses mm-hmm. and, and struggles. Maybe- uh, I don't know which ones you want to dive into. There's a, there's a plethora. We have maybe, 400 we could go into. So. <laughs> That's true. We can just work one by one through the <laughs> DSM. Uh, what about, uh, maybe we can dive into a little bit of like personality disorders, borderline, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. narcissistic. Um, kind of how do these, maybe you could explain a little bit. You don't need to go in mm-hmm. super detail because um, it that will take forever just sure. to go through all of them. But maybe what generally is a personality disorder and how is that different um, mm-hmm. from some of the other mental illnesses we described? Yeah. Um, and then I'll ask some questions following up after that.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a complex question. I'll try to be succinct because um, we could we could literally talk about this for yeah. hours. So, yeah. um, I'll just talk w- uh, maybe initially about what personality is because if you ask somebody to define uh, what personality is, that's that's not easy to do. Really, it's sort of like defining love, right? It's like mm-hmm. what is a personality? Well, and we think we know what it is. Um, uh, personality is is Sort of the conglomeration of enduring traits within us um mm. uh, and a lot of that is a very uh strong sort of <clears throat> kind of experience of how we're how we're hardwired when we're born because kids are born with personality i mean if yeah. you have multiple kids you'll notice right away i mean right out of the right out of the shoot man they're different mm-hmm. uh, and it's and this is how they're hardwiring. this is how god created them mm-hmm. um and so it's how does personality then intersect with their environment, and, and this is how it develops over time. Um, a personality disorder uh, is uh, sort of these enduring kind of personality traits that are socially not as acceptable. Hmm. And uh, someone with a personality disorder uh, tends to be very inflexible in their personality traits. So... A hallmark of health in many ways, or a few hallmarks of health, are this is this idea that we're both we're flexible and we're adaptable and mm-hmm. we're stable. So as humans, I can flex when my environment requires it. I can adapt to different kinds of environments, but I'm still stable. I'm still rooted mm-hmm. in a sense of self. Mm-hmm. Someone with a personality disorder tends to be very inflexible, right? They tend to be unable to sort of go with the flow. They tend to be unable to kind of operate outside their comfort zone for long. Uh, And uh, they tend to disown responsibility. So one of the hallmarks of a personality disorder is really nothing's my fault. Mm -hmm. Really everything is somebody else's fault. Mm -hmm. And it's a way of, it's a defense really Mm -hmm. about sort of this deeper reality, which is a lot of things are they're they're culpable in. Um, So personality disorders, uh, affect about 9% of the population or so. Um, there are there are several of them. Uh, the ones that you will hear about the most, however, are the narcissistic personality disorder, which, you know, narcissism, that word narcissist is like everywhere. Yeah. Uh, the borderline personality disorder. Uh, and then the histrionic personality disorder. Those three probably are the ones you're going to confront yeah. the most.
0: And this is something that, like, compared to depression and anxiety, what's the difference in treatment? Um in a sense, quote, quote unquote, can it be cured? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What does that look like for these personality disorders?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, they can be treated, uh, and they can sort of quote unquote be cured, um, but it's it's a slow journey, uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is connected to uh, the reality that with personality disorders, there are a lot of early developmental uh, issues. So. Uh, a lot of times with a more severe borderline personality disorder, for instance, uh, this is someone who really kind of got stuck very early in life and they experienced the world like a very young person. They're afraid mm-hmm. of being abandoned or... They're they're terrified that you're going to leave them. Kind of like a child is afraid that the parent mm-hmm. is going to walk away from him at Disneyland and they're going to get lost in the mm-hmm. sea of people. right?
0: Mm-hmm. Which actually happened to my brother. <laughs> so if <laughs> yeah, he has that, yeah, no, it's, but that's not what causes it. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, if it if it's if it happens all the time, you know, yeah. it can it fuel other things. Uh, and then the narcissistic personality, which is really where they have a very grandiose sense of self. I mean, they really think they're great, and they need everyone else to think they're mm-hmm. great too. And Mm-hmm. And, in, and in marriage, uh, these kinds of personality disorders I find are particularly problematic, uh, and in <clears throat> relationships more generally, mm-hmm. uh, because somebody who maybe—and again, these things are on a continuum from mild to severe, but, but somebody who has a more severe uh, borderline personality and that, that fear of abandonment is really strong, uh, they're going to do almost anything to make sure they're not abandoned, even mm-hmm. really destructive things like, I'm going to kill myself if you— Reject mm-hmm. me. I'm going to kill myself if you break up with me, you know, in a dating relationship. And it, and it becomes very dramatic because this is the depth of just how terrified they are because mm-hmm. their sense of self is so connected to you that if you break up with them, they're almost empty inside. We'll mm. kind of talk about that, yeah. which can be obviously can get problematic in a in a dating relationship or even a friendship. This becomes yeah. problematic. Um. And then with a more narcissistic personality, what I find is that they're very oriented towards everything having to be uh, your fault uh, because they just can't handle this idea that something they could could have done something bad or wrong. Mm -hmm. And so they need to blame the other person. And when you're in a relationship with somebody who's narcissistic, it gets really crazy-making because you're blamed for everything all the time. And eventually you start to kind of believe it. Uh, Mm. And I find for people who are in relationships with somebody who's really narcissistic is over time they really lose confidence in themselves because it's mm-hmm. just undermined on you know yeah every opportunity
0: and you are listening to this you're probably thinking like oh my my spouse or my partner <laughs> don't go diagnosing <laughs> it's rule number one let a counselor a psychologist mm-hmm. a clinical someone do that um but even the, the mild to severe continuum is huge because i think we all possess some sense of like i don't sure. want to be abandoned yeah. I don't want to take ownership. That's that's humanity. Mm-hmm. But this is the more severe cases, yeah. um, and this is how it plays out. So maybe we can talk a little bit. I know I have some friends who are kids of parents who come from, you know, either they have a borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, some type of personality disorder, and it affected how they kind of attach and do mm-hmm. intimacy, even though they themselves don't have it. Mm-hmm. So maybe what, what would this do to maybe a child who grew up in a household um, where they had either one parent or both parents who suffered from a personality disorder.
1: Yeah, that's a tough way to grow up. And they're going to have to do a lot of work, right? It wasn't their fault that they grew up with a personality disordered parent. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is uh, they're going to have to do the work of of healing from that, because that's such a hard way to be a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, because obviously with a, with if you just use what we talked about already about you know narcissistic and borderline personality disorders, you know, the narcissistic parent really needs their child to reflect and mirror them in a good way all the time. So the narcissistic parent needs their kid to be really great all the time. They mm-hmm. need them to be always good, always always dressed the way they want, always the right weight, always the perfect shape. I mean, they, they really do have very limited capacity for the child to not be perfect. Uh, with the borderline parent it's a little different because the borderline parent is pretty erratic tries to get a lot of their needs met through their kids um, has uh, what we refer to sometimes as a borderline rage which means they can get extremely angry um, and then they can be sort of seductive in some ways too mm-hmm. not necessarily sexually seductive but even may that may even be in the mix somewhere that the, that the parent becomes kind of sexually seductive even if they don't Act that out; it's very confusing for the child. Yeah. So, uh, for the for the adult child uh, who has a narcissistic or borderline parent, in particular, um, my encouragement would really be number one: uh, you really need to get some help in developing good boundaries. Hmm. Because one of the most important things you need to do with a with a personality disordered parent is you need to develop boundaries because they don't have any, Mm -hmm. and so your job becomes, I need to do this for my own health. And you oftentimes need to get help and you need to get some therapy because if you start to develop boundaries, uh, your personality disorder parent is going to get angry at you. Yeah, Uh, And you need a place to go with that so that you can kind of hold on to your own health in the process. And there's no quick way through that either. And so you need somebody wise. You need somebody who is going to be able to uh, kind of speak truth into that because the personality disordered parent is going to make you feel crazy or you feel selfish or you feel yeah. bad because you need to have some limits and some boundaries. You can't be everything
0: that they want you to be. Yeah. So maybe if, if you're married to a personality disorder and we're going to circle back to depression, anxiety as well with this question. Um, but first, if, you, if you're married to someone, you don't have the personality disorder, but you married someone who did, and maybe you weren't aware of it before you married them. Um, what would be your advice for that mm-hmm. spouse um, and how to kind of operate <laughs> and what yeah. to do?
1: Well, you're in a, you're in a tough, tough place yeah. there, too. So, uh, you know, my obviously, you know, I teach marriage counseling and I want marriages to mm-hmm. survive. And so um, I think, again, I, look, I, I'm not I'm not a psychologist that says everybody needs therapy. That's not my point. Mm-hmm. But I do think you have to acknowledge the complexity of the marital relationship that you're in. And you may very well need therapy and you may very well need uh, marital counseling with somebody who really understands personality disorders because not all therapists know how to work with personality disorders this is a pretty yeah. specialized area of treatment and so to be well informed, and if you're
0: just meeting with like an older couple in the church they specifically might sure. not know it at all and they may yeah. be missing you yep um and how to help you
1: yep and a lot of times they'll blame <clears throat> yep. a non-disordered spouse <laughs> yep so yeah, so you, you need to get, I think, some serious help. Do a lot of reading. There are a lot of, uh, I think, kind of there are a lot of good books out there. Uh, the oldie but the goodie for someone who has a, a maybe a borderline uh, uh, spouse or even a, a borderline parent or a borderline child uh, is a book called Stop Walking on Eggshells, which has been around mm-hmm. for a long time. But it's just a good book because eventually we all start feeling like we're walking on eggshells because we don't want to evoke the kind of response in them that's that that's painful and difficult for us so i think getting informed speaking with some experts and you know speaking with a a therapist who maybe really understands personality disorders um may help and then kind of remembering uh I, i think it goes back to what you said a little earlier which is uh look having having borderline traits or narcissistic traits doesn't mean someone is narcissistic or borderline mm-hmm. because we all have some of these traits and mm-hmm. uh in fact some of these traits are, are beneficial for us depending on what career path we choose right i mean yeah i, I want my pilot to be a little obsessive compulsive right yeah. and
0: i don't think we i've apparently ever... want our president to be a little bit narcissistic <laughs> well you know
1: frankly <clears throat> i'm not sure there's been a president in my lifetime that hasn't been so oh, yeah. narcissistic, right?
0: You'd have to, to go for the role, to want, I mean, of to course. want absolute power over one of the <laughs> biggest, strongest nations sure. in the world. There has to be some narcissistic traits in you.
1: Well, to believe that you are yeah, the most ideal person yes. to run a country. You can so. solve it. Yeah.
0: Whatever, all the problems America faces, yeah. you're the one that can solve it. You but want one person.
1: The flip side of that, oh, that though is, do you want a president who doesn't have self-confidence? Yeah. Right. You need some. And so uh, so that's that line between self-confidence and narcissism. You know, it's it's easy to cross. And again, even that continuum of narcissism. So I think one of the things to do as a spouse is is to try to also maintain a bit of a humble posture that uh, that this I, I may sense that this might be true. But uh, y- y- if you label your spouse as narcissistic or borderline, uh, you're always going to get a negative reaction from that, right? So, <laughs> so you got to be, yeah, you know, be mindful of the fact that maybe there are some of those traits in there, but but maybe they're not fully diagnosable. Maybe it's sort of subclinical, and but it still means you have to work on it, and yeah. you all have to work on it, and and it is a it is a marriage that's at risk. Uh, yeah, it's it's hard to be married to somebody who's really narcissistic or really borderline.
0: Yeah. And I hate to say this because I love the church, but sometimes the church is the worst place you can take this to. I mean, a, a healthy, good church is not the worst place, but a, an unhealthy mm-hmm. one. I can think of couples in my past, older couples that i know, and looking back on it now, where the wife was basically left on her loan and forced to deal mm-hmm. with the husband who had either narcissistic or borderline personality disorder, Because since the church doesn't want divorce, which I'm with, um, but they're not actually helping her. It's almost they blame her then. Mm -hmm. Why can't you adjust to his needs? Just figure out how to work with it. Figure out how to do this for the kids. Think about the kids. You don't want this divorce. Mm -hmm. And it's like I'm all about some of those reasons. But when it's used to almost shame Mm -hmm. the partner who's actually the one that's not causing (laughs) some -hmm. of the problems. Mm -hmm. Um, But also there's an aspect of it. And you've mentioned this in your classes and it's come up on other podcasts where you do – in some ways, marry at the same health um, as you. And you've talked Mm -hmm. about that. Other psychologists have. And so we're not saying if you've found out today that you're married to someone who has a personality disorder that you're just as quote-unquote bad. We don't even want to view it in terms of good or bad because that's not what this is. Um, But there's something in you that was drawn to that. Mm -hmm. And there's something in you that put up with that. Um, Maybe you grew up in a family with a parent who had a personality disorder, so you never learned boundaries. So when you dated Mm -hmm. someone who didn't have boundaries, it felt comfortable and it felt normal. So there's even an aspect of it, I feel like, where you have to look into your own heart of like, okay, what was it about this person that me? There's something about narcissism that's really attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, but the tail end of that's going to bite you, <laughs> yeah. um, the flip side. I mean, that's with every personality trait that's good. There's an mm-hmm. aspect of that that could probably turn to bite you. And you just have to know this is what I'm, this is what I'm buying into mm-hmm. if I get in this relationship. Mm-hmm. So maybe moving from that to depression and anxiety, um, what would you recommend for a partner who's the non-depressive, non-anxious partner, um, and how to to deal with love and cope um, mm-hmm. living with a partner who's struggling with depression or anxiety?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I have several thoughts around around that. Um, I think what you just mentioned is is important too, and that is uh, differentiating between the spouse you married who was non-depressed, no signs of anxiety has had some kind of life crisis and to sort of kicked those things into gear uh, versus uh, you kind of knew going into it that there was a bit of a depressive trait or a bit of an anxiety trait. Uh, and, and there was something about that that you either ignored or you actually kind of liked. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, for instance, people who have kind of a mild depressive kind of trait can be like in their sullenness and their kind of darkness there's sometimes a certain creativity that's in that or a certain kind of (laughs) angstiness that we kind of like sometimes we're sort of drawn Mm -hmm. to right Mm -hmm. and and there's a 2 edge to that sword sometimes the person that's a little more kind of anxious maybe that fit with where we were because we weren't looking for more than that we were we kind of felt contained by some of their anxiety too so uh i think i think we do have to first look inside and, and look in to our own heart to find out how are we maybe um, adding to the trouble uh, what are we bringing to the equation that maybe is particularly problematic that's that's stirring this pot a bit and so i think we always have to look at ourselves first because we're the only one that we can ultimately change and so if there's something we can do that can improve the situation then we have the most power to do that um Aside from that, if if you have a spouse who's really depressed or really anxious, uh, I, I, you have to be. And I and I know it's hard for spouses to hear this because they feel frustrated already. Uh, but you do have to at least initially kind of start with uh, an acceptance of the fact that this person is suffering, this person's dealing with with a mental illness, and it's not of their choosing. You yeah. can't just think better thoughts and then now I'm going to feel better and I'm going to feel less depressed or I'm going to feel less anxious. That this yeah. is something that they they carry in a really heavy way, and for many of them, they want to be less depressed and less anxious even more than you do as their spouse, right? Yeah, and they're suffering under this. So I think kind of uh, don't kind of victim blame, you know, in this mm-hmm. and kind of put throw them under the bus in that way because that's an easy thing to I've seen yeah. that happen a lot.
0: Well, it's not like they woke up one day and decided, I want to be depressed or I want to be severely anxious or I Mm -hmm. "I want to be a narcissist. That Mm -hmm. happened long term. That happened Mm -hmm. over time. That happened because of maybe childhood stuff. It could be hereditary in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So to ask them then the next day to wake up and choose to not be those things, it's like, well, we just spent 10 years forming this maybe depressive reality. Mm -hmm to change it in the day just by positive thinking, no matter how many books are written on positive thinking, mm-hmm. um, although positive thinking is a good thing, mm-hmm. it can't change you overnight. Um, yeah. And neither can the saving grace of Jesus, mm-hmm. um, which a lot of people, it's like, well, you're a Christian now. You can't <laughs> you can't be depressed. Mm-hmm. You can't be anxious. And it's like, well, that's not how this works. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot yeah. of co- a lot of partners just don't know that they should, they're not knowing that they need to expect a long haul with this. Mm-hmm. Um, they're hoping for a quick, quick yeah. fix. Yeah. Um, But that's normally not how how it works.
1: It's going to be a long journey. And and there has to be a a willingness uh, uh, with the depressed spouse or the anxious spouse to kind of acknowledge this is a problem, right? Because you can't uh, be a co-conspirator to minimize the reality of the problem. You have to be able to kind of acknowledge without shaming them, without making them feel guilty – but be able to say this is reality. And, and some people are depressed and they're not even aware that they're depressed, uh, especially for males. They'll, you know, they're, they just experience this irritability, right? Yeah, I'm just annoyed just angry. all the time, right? Yeah. I'm just angry. But underneath it is really a deep, dark depression. Um, and, and so, uh, even, you know, for the non depressed spouse, the non anxious spouse, uh, I think there has to be. There, there do have to be boundaries in there, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. they do have to be able to say, "Look, I love you, uh, but we need help." Yeah, and I might even talk about it as we, because as soon as you say like you need help, uh, then it becomes, uh, you know, you're just pointing the finger at me, and I already feel guilty and ashamed. Yeah, but I think there's a reality when you marry this person, you're now a we. And if they're depressed, they're affecting the whole family. They're affecting yeah. you. They're de- affecting the kids. Mm-hmm. And so I think it honestly is a we. We need to get some help with this. Yeah. And 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 then you have to have some expectations and some boundaries and some limits that say no. This this is something we need to work on. You can't just let them kind of yeah. minimize it forever. Because the fact is, uh, the only way to really get better, by and large, is you have to work on it. And if you're not acknowledging you have the problem, you're not going to work on it. Yeah, and that becomes really an important piece.
0: I think that that part about the male expressing it as anger is big, because I think there's a lot of men who are either alcoholics or angry alcoholics, mm-hmm. um, or mm-hmm. some type of mixture of that, and they're not realizing that anger is a secondary emotion um, that. Alcoholism is an addiction, and that mm-hmm. both those things need to be dealt with. But there's probably a root to reason mm-hmm. why you got into alcoholism or why you're so angry all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, I think even spouses a lot of times focus so much on just stopping the addiction, which does need to be stopped, sure. does need help, or stopping the anger, which does need to be stopped, especially if it's leading to violence. Um, but normally, probably what's underneath that is a deep depression. Mm-hmm. Um, there may yeah, be some abandonment. Um, yeah, and until that. you get to those, maybe you'll get the anger down and maybe you'll get the alcoholism down, but eventually it might just sprout up Mm -hmm. in different ways if you're not dealing with the root. Mm -hmm. Um, so maybe let's, let's move towards the, the spouse, the partner who is struggling. Um, what would be your hope for them and like how they should be going about this? Um, what is their path forward in seeking help?
1: Well, as a, as a Christian, but also as as a therapist, um, and I think this is, really, I need to ask this question, but I think this is where the church really has a role. Most healing happens in the context of community. And so um, I want this person uh, connected. I want this person connected uh, with other people that could be family members, their spouse, a therapist, but I want them to be in a small group. I want them to be maybe in a, in a, uh, maybe in a group of other people who are struggling with anxiety and it just becomes a support group for themselves. I want them to be in AA if they're struggling with addiction. I want them mm-hmm. I want them to be with people uh, because we live in a very isolated culture at this point. Uh, loneliness is like an uh, epidemic level. Uh, Cigna did a huge study recently, found uh, they had 20 subjects in their study, or tw- I'm sorry, 20,000 subjects in their study. <laughs> That's not a very large study. Yeah, no, no, 20,000 <laughs> Uh, And they found that almost 50 percent reported feeling alone all or most of the time. Wow. Right. So we we live in a pretty isolated culture. And I think some of some of what we're experiencing is a byproduct of a lack of community. Um, Mm -hmm. May mean I'm not going to automatically feel less depressed, but but it's it's you know, we're we're created to be in community with people. That's where that's where I think we get a sense of well-being. We get a sense of safety oftentimes. So, um, I want people, uh, to really as much as possible, uh, seek out a healthy community. Now, when you're really depressed, it might be hard enough just to get out of bed and and go and meet with a therapist, you know, once a week. Mm -hmm. Uh, but ultimately, uh, the goal is to get you out there, to get you engaged, get you connected again. Um, Anxiety has, you know, come different trajectory to it. But in, uh, at, at the end of the day, uh, therapy oftentimes for, for a lot of people is sort of one component. Uh, but therapy, you know, is oftentimes uh, uh, a seasonal thing, right? We're in therapy for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Most of us aren't going to be in therapy our whole lives. We need other people around us that are going to be able to yeah. be part of a, a- Well, no one's got
0: that kind of money to be in therapy their <laughs> whole lives. <laughs> you guys <Yeah>. are expensive. <laughs> Most people don't, but but nonetheless. Yeah. Um,
1: so I want them to seek out whatever help is necessary. And sometimes that just starts with a diagnosis. Yeah. What is the actual problem? And you can't yeah. treat a problem until, you, until you've until you diagnosed the problem. Yeah. And I've had a lot of people come in to see me over the years who are quite depressed and completely unaware that they're depressed. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of people that are probably don't think they are anxious, don't think they're suffering from depression because they don't look like it. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the biggest pitfalls of social media and technology, which they're, they can be a great tool, but it's, it's distraction. Um, and a, and a fun little experiment I do often with groups I lead either in porn recovery or something is Mm -hmm. like, Hey, let's go to your iPhone, click on screen time (laughs) and just look at how much time you're spending in different apps. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a good amount of them. It's like I spend an hour on YouTube a day, an hour Mm -hmm. plus on Instagram, maybe two hours on Instagram, and then an hour on like Twitter and other things. And it's like, okay, there's something you're, you're distracting yourself from something. Maybe it is anxiety. You're distracting yourself. Maybe it is depression. Maybe there is roots there. Um, But so often they never get to, that's why therapy is so big. I think for my generation, because it's giving them an hour where they're not on their phones, Mm -hmm. they have to be completely present and they have to look inside. Um, and it terrifies me. Yeah, because, I mean, the moments I've gone and fasted from, you know, Christian fasted from technology or something, you have so many times where you just, like, you feel an emotion stirring up and you immediately want to pull out your phone and go to Instagram. Mm-hmm. You want to pull out your phone and go to YouTube, go to, you know, the news or something mm-hmm. to distract yourself. Um, where... For generations, we never had maybe this easily, just dis- like a distractible device yeah, yeah. that we just don't have to think about anything. We don't have to do anything. We can go somewhere else, and it makes total sense then that we'd feel very disconnected because mm-hmm. we're pretending that we have this big Instagram or TikTok or Twitter community. Um, but mm-hmm. there's something in the face-to-face, not on the screen, connection that that humans really need, um, and mm-hmm. that's why so many of my friends that have gotten into AA or SAA. Um, or a different type of uh, like addicts, addicts, anonymous, um, mm-hmm. they've like, wow, I finally found my community. And it makes me sad because a lot of them are either ex-Christians who have left the faith, um, or current Christians, and they're not finding that kind mm-hmm. of community within the church. Yeah. So maybe a question off of that for you, Dr. Man, this might be our last question is what is your hope for the, the church mm-hmm. and kind of coming alongside couples um, or either one partner struggling or coming alongside a family where someone's struggling or, Mm-hmm. something where what is the, the hope of the church and yeah. in, in doing something about it's really, I don't want to call it epidemic. Cause I think that's mm-hmm. used too frequently, mm-hmm. but even in that study, 50% of people are feeling lonely yeah. either half the time or all the time. Mm-hmm. So how can the church come alongside people sure. in, in this, this struggle?
1: Well, I, let me go back to what you just said and then I'll come okay, to the, yeah. your question. <laughs> I really will. So uh, at the risk, you know, I, I, I always, I always say this uh, as a caveat because I'm not anti-technology. Like I mm-hmm. love technology, and mm-hmm. uh, I used to work in the technology industry when I was younger. And uh, so I love technology. Uh, my my iPhone's probably my favorite toy. Uh, <laughs> however, what I what I I do believe is that I actually do, and I'm not the only person that thinks this. Uh, I actually think the smartphone might be at the core of why we're seeing such an increase in mental illness rates Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of it is what you just mentioned which is uh, capacity for introspection uh, the reaching out to other people instead of um, or rather uh, we reach out to people via our smartphones and our social media accounts rather than a real live human being that's mm-hmm. there that we can touch and we can mm-hmm. smell and see um uh, and i and we've and we've replaced i think real connection for for pseudo false connection mm-hmm. uh and and look that has its place i mean i like to know what's going on with my relatives in yeah. the west yeah however uh it it isn't real it, it's not intimacy uh it's I, I think a lot of times it's a salve for our anxieties and and that's why most people feel anxious if they don't have their phone with them right if they're told you can't you can't have it for six hours Mm -hmm. right we immediately feel an anxiety and i don't think it's just because we're afraid oh our kids can't get a hold of us or i'm afraid Mm -hmm. my girlfriend can't get a hold of me whatever it is Mm -hmm. i think it's really a deeper sense of i don't know where to go if i don't have this thing to fill up this Mm -hmm. this empty space and so um I've been rereading this. My son reminded me of this book recently by Rollo May uh, called Man's Search for Himself. Uh, And he talks a great deal about anxiety, this sort of deep human tendency towards anxiety. And and, and a lot of what he's saying is the anxiety is connected to this sense of emptiness. Like, Like I'm trying to fill the emptiness. I'm trying to fill the loneliness. And the smartphone has been like a key to a lock, man. It it mm-hmm. feels like you're filling it but it's cotton candy it it tastes good but it does not nourish it mm-hmm. doesn't build bones it doesn't build muscles it doesn't build connection yeah and and i really have a a growing sense that that this is sort of a core issue that we haven't figured out how to get our mm-hmm. our, our head around When people yet.
0: forget it's only 10 11 years old. It's new. Like but yeah. there's we can't live without it now. You can't even I mean you can't even do work without it anymore. Yeah. Um so yeah. it's become essential now. It's yeah. so now we're essentially stuck Yep. with this device that's used mm-hmm. for all these terrible cotton candy things mm-hmm. just to make up for the 10% that it actually is good. I mean, yeah. I've, I switched from an iPhone. I switched from all Apple products <laughs> to Samsung just because I'm uh, not even Samsung, just Android because I can get more like time away. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not as accessible. I don't have it connecting to a watch and an iPad mm-hmm. where people mm-hmm. can reach me all the time. I'm like, even the fear of like, what if I'm going to miss a call from my mom or sure. from someone? It's like, well, 15 years ago, You did and you survived (laughs) and it was okay. 30 years ago, you wrote them a letter and you talked to them every six months. This instant access to everyone, I don't think actually makes me feel connected. No, Um, It can help me feel connected because I have instant access to like check in if there's something terrible happened or check in if something bad happened to me. Mm -hmm. But I want to use that to set up face-to-face time or intentional Mm -hmm. time.
1: It um, actually creates its own form of anxiety.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I don't think people think critically. I think you're right. People don't think critically enough mm-hmm. about the smartphone, and especially mm-hmm. my generation. I'm on the cusp of like I still kind of learn the smartphone, mm-hmm. but I know it so well that I still teach all my parents and <laughs> everyone how to use it. So it's kind of the in-between. Yeah. Um, but Gen Z, like they just have had a smartphone since 10 years. They thought this is how the world has always worked. It's always been a smartphone. I mean, yeah. I don't want to be this old boomer who's trying mm-hmm. to, you know, relish about the olden times. Sure. But there is an aspect of, like, if I could just keep the 10% of good functionality Mm -hmm. of the iPhone Mm -hmm. and throw away the 90%, I think our society would be in a much happier place.
1: Yeah, there's a a study uh, from last year. It was the first causal study looking at the impact of social media on depression and anxiety. Uh, And we've known that they've been correlated for a while, but researchers have never been been able to say this causes this. Mm -hmm. We did a very elaborate study uh, and actually now have real data that says, no, the more you use social media, the more you're on your technology, the less happy you'll be You'll be, and the more anxious you'll be. Yeah. So much so that the the, the head researcher on this study said, if you want to be happier, put down your phone and go talk to a real person. Yeah. I mean, that was the final outcome of this study. So uh, there is something to that. So what does the church uh, – to go back to your original question mm-hmm. about the church. Look, I, I think the church – is sitting in a really uh, potentially important position relative to there are no other social institutions from my perspective uh, that are as well poised to respond to the very real spiritual social personal relational needs uh, that people have in the culture and so much so that i've really started thinking about pretty much all care ministries in the church as mental health ministries, mm-hmm. that they really are attending to the mental health of the people that attend. So uh, the mo- the mother that attends, the mothers of preschoolers, you know, every week, uh, and is struggling with baby blues or postpartum depression or just feeling isolated and lonely. And I mean, this is attending to a real need that this person has. Divorce care, celebrate recovery, divorce care for kids, grief share. These are all really at their core mental health ministries Mm -hmm. and and oftentimes when i talk to pastors uh, their churches may not have any of them Mm -hmm. they they haven't put any of these things into place and 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 i would even mention secondarily that i think a lot of them are potentially evangelistic in in their role right that it's very easy for a mom to invite a neighborhood mom who's unchurched or non-christian to a mom's group once a week because it meets such a need for them they're so hungry for it yeah and, and they're going to be exposed to the gospel as part of their, yeah. their time there or or grief share, or divorce care. So these things yeah. even become evangelistic outreaches, but they're attending to the very real felt need uh, that people in the congregations have. And they don't, if the church doesn't offer it, uh, by and large, uh, there's nowhere else to go. Yeah. And so they go to the bar or they go yeah. to social media or they go to Netflix or they go to these things that just, mm-hmm. they just fuel the problem. They don't actually... Attend to the problems.
0: Yeah. One of my biggest, I think, burdens for the church is I just am really sick of the mega church model. Um, and I'm actually moving to Seattle to work in a church that's <laughs> fairly big. So, I mean, I guess I'm a hypocrite. Um, but. There's, there's something about it where I'm just like, maybe 50 years ago, the big concert style really worked. and Even 30 years ago and 20 years ago, because it was a big rallying point. It was exciting. God was moving. This is momentum. And there's nothing wrong with big conference-type gatherings. I'm all about that. But I think my generation is kind of just, we go to Sunday mornings, and then we come home, and we feel just as lonely as we did when mm-hmm. we left. We feel mm-hmm. pretty good right after the sermon and worship for a good couple hours. Maybe we got lunch with a mm-hmm. few people. But we live so disconnected lives the rest of the week that Sunday morning can't, it's not even going to rally us because our lives don't match it. I mean, maybe 20 years ago, since we were more, I don't say we were going to more connected, but there was maybe more connected family systems, more connected. There wasn't social media to distract us. So the Sunday morning was just like a the you know icing on the cake, this really good rallying of awesome preaching. Mm-hmm. But nowadays I'm like, man, I, I don't know if it's working. Um, and it's working in terms of numbers because people feel an obligation, I think to go and they do get something good out of it, good teaching. but I wonder if even in systems, like you're talking about systems and structures in terms of like care ministries. and I'm like I wonder even if we need to really start emphasizing small groups more every church does, mm-hmm. but almost not in like a forceful way. but like almost like don't come to our Sunday mornings unless mm-hmm. you're rooted because this is gonna do nothing for you if you're not actually in connected community. Um, but that's just something I've been musing on because why are we getting lonelier and lonelier? And people I know that are going to church every Sunday, they, they're still incredibly mm-hmm. lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, man, maybe maybe yeah. we need to do things differently. I don't know. Well, I,
1: I'm not a person who thinks, you know, everything was better in the past. I think. I don't either. Everything's a mixed <laughs> bag. But um, And what's interesting is in one of my classes, well, the class you were in, uh, I made I make all of my students go to an AA meeting as part yeah. of their their course when we talk about addiction recovery, and I've been giving out that assignment for almost twenty years, um, mm-hmm. and I get virtually the same response every time from people, uh, which is, "I wish church were more like AA." Mm-hmm. Uh, and when they when when they sort of unpack that, and when I ask them to unpack that a little bit they always say a couple of the same things which is um i so appreciated how vulnerable people were mm-hmm. at aa they really uh, i'm not trying to idealize aa you know <laughs> but but i but yeah. i think but the nature of it is people come pretty unvarnished they, yeah. they they come pretty broken and they're and they're there because of it and they're willing to talk about it and acknowledge it yeah and, and i think what they find so appealing about that is is it, it lets them be broken too, right? The students can go and they can kind of acknowledge, they don't have to say it in the meeting, but they're, they're more okay with their own brokenness because it's allowed in the environment. And and they'll talk about how church oftentimes can feel like I, 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 we kind of go and we all sort of put on our best face and we put on our, our better clothes and, but people aren't necessarily feeling authentic and, and real, and talking about their very real struggles, and I yeah. think as pastors, uh, that has to be part of the equation. There ha- that has to be an environment. There has to be a, I don't know, a culture of, of, of both acceptance and openness that people can actually be. I think a little uh, uh, feel, you know, pretty safe with with mm-hmm. bringing their brokenness to church. Um, and I think a lot of pastors are okay with that. I just don't think that we're very good at. That's mm-hmm. sort of, I don't know, espousing that in a way or yeah. acknowledging it in a way that Well, every church wants to do it, that.
0: but they often don't have the means mm-hmm. or they just, all their money's put towards a Sunday service. Mm-hmm. And so even though their passion is to do the small groups, they just have no energy left over. Mm-hmm. I have so many friends that either left the church, have never been in the church, or even like left the church and hate God and hate mm-hmm. church, mm-hmm. who said, if the church was like AA, I would go every week. Mm-hmm regardless of what you guys teach. Yeah. Because it was that, like my friends who have been through AA, they said it was that impactful yeah. for me. I'm going to be with these people for the rest of my lives because of the mm-hmm. kind of community we have. And they said, if mm-hmm. church was anything like this, I'd be there every single week. <laughs>
1: so maybe every pastor should visit an AA meeting <laughs> yeah. and see what it's like. What what of that could we bring to the church? Yeah, okay. Because there is some, because like you're talking about with your friends, I, I just hear this semester after semester after semester, I hear the same thing. I wish church would
0: go right well, sweet. Let's stop there. Thank you so much, Dr. Van Lant. Oh, I, know is, I know this is going to bless a lot of people. Um, and maybe people after this will go to an meeting, whether or not they're an addict or not. Exactly. <laughs> um, especially if they are, but even if they're not, I'm um, to take this into their churches. It's so- And as always, if you've enjoyed what you have heard today or enjoyed what this podcast is doing and what is it about, it would help us out greatly if you could leave us a review and if you could subscribe to the podcast. This helps us reach other people and this helps us fulfill what this podcast is ultimately trying to do, which is bring hope to those who are trapped, those who are struggling, and those who are wondering what to do with sexuality. We hope that Dr. Van Lant's words today encouraged you in your marriage, encouraged you in your relationships, reframed how you view mental illness and intimacy, and ultimately made you feel hope for your relationships. And as always, may the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace in believing, so by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.